and welcome to the One Hit Wonder podcast, where I discuss one topic and then never make a podcast again. My name is Alexia Tabawada, and today I will be talking about prisoners' rights. I would like to apologize for the audio quality. My microphone wasn't working, so we are stuck with my laptop mic. So let's get started. While as a society, we are aware and in general agreement that people who break the laws and commit crimes should go to jail and have certain rights taken away from them, not very many people are aware that prisoners have had to fight for some very basic rights as well. Today, I'm going to highlight three landmark cases and stories that have left a lasting legacy on the world of criminal justice when it comes to prisoners' rights. Starting with our oldest case, Backstrom versus Harold, we dive headfirst into the topic of equal protection, which is covered underneath the 14th Amendment. This case was decided in 1966 and features Johnny K. Backstrom. Backstrom was convicted of second-degree assault in April of 1959 and sentenced to two and a half to three years in a New York State prison. During his stay at this prison, he was certified as insane by a prison physician and then transferred to Dannemora State Hospital, which is used by the state of New York as a corrections hospital for the mentally ill. Now, this is where his rights are in question. Towards the end of his sentence, the hospital's director noted that Backstrom still needed mental health care, and so he filed for Backstrom to be transferred to a civil hospital where he could receive care without being part of the criminal justice or correction system anymore. However, the Department of Mental Hygiene decided ex parte that Backstrom should just stay at Dannemora because he believed that Backstrom wasn't suited for a civil hospital. Now, before you ask, ex parte just means that he decided this without regards to Backstrom. He also said that it didn't matter that his sentence was ending, he would still have to stay at Dannemora. Now, I don't know about you, but personally, I feel like this is a little messed up, but hey, I'm not the almighty Department of Mental Hygiene director who can decide that people need to stay in a correctional facility longer than their sentence. So, Mr. Johnny Backstrom also felt like this wasn't right, and this became a legal issue. The issue in question pondered whether Backstrom was being denied equal protection when he was denied the jury review that was available to others in the state who were civilly committed to hospitals. This means that others who were in the same position as him were granted a review of the danger level they posed in a civil hospital setting, but he was not. He was just deemed dangerous, and I don't think that's very fair. And truly, the arguments of the defense were a bit pathetic, if I'm being honest with you. The defense stated that Dannemora is similar to a civil hospital, so it doesn't matter if Backstrom had to stay there. The prosecutors easily rebutted this by saying that it doesn't matter how similar they are because the New York State Legislature makes the distinction between a correctional hospital and a civil hospital, and Dannemora was a correctional hospital. The defense then also stated that they did not want to transfer Backstrom because he had a past of being being violent. Well, 
The prosecutors also turned that around by saying that there must be a judicial proceeding to determine if Backstrom is still dangerous. He still deserves this grace, even though his sentence was coming to an end. This is what's called equal protection. This whole case was decided by the United States Supreme Court, and on February 23, 1966, Backstrom actually came out victorious. He ended up being transferred to a civil hospital and continued to receive the mental health care that he needed. As for the large-scale immediate results, just one month after the decision, two of New York's corrections hospitals began to transfer 967 patients to 18 of their civil facilities. This means that almost 1,000 people were being involuntarily hospitalized past the end of their sentence. However, other than New York, only one state followed suit, and that was Massachusetts. So, apart from the immediate change, the long-term result was that inmates now have to be deemed dangerous by legal means if they are to remain involuntarily hospitalized at the end of their sentence. Otherwise, they will be released back into everyday society or moved to a civil hospital, so they're no longer part of the criminal justice system. This kind of sounds like something that should have already been happening, but better late than never, I guess. Our next case was also run through the United States Supreme Court. So this is Estelle versus Gamble. Estelle versus Gamble was a landmark case in 1976 with regards to the Eighth Amendment in terms of cruel and unusual punishment. Now, what's the story here? Well, J.W. Gamble was a prisoner at the Huntington unit of the prison of the Texas prison system, and he got injured while working on November 9, 1973. He had a whole barrel of cotton fall on him, and he hurt his back. After this incident, he complained that he was in too much pain to work in the following days, so he was granted the, the, the right to stay in his cell instead of going to work. He made multiple visits to the doctors at the prison and was prescribed different types of pain relievers and muscle relaxants. He was eventually told to go back to work and just work off the pain, but when he refused because he was in too much pain, he was sent to administrative segregation and then to the Disci prison disciplinary committee for work refusal. refusal. Administrative segregation is somewhat similar to solitary confinement, but not quite. Um, it can be used as a punishment, but can also be used if you need to go somewhere if you're a danger to the other prisoners or they're a danger to you. Um, he remained in administrative segregation for all of December and January and was simply getting prescribed lots of pain relievers. At the end of January, he was once again sent to the Prison Disciplinary Committee for refu work refusal and he did not get another medical examination when he once again stated that he was in too much pain to work. He also felt like it, he said he also stated that he felt like his blood pressure was too high. So they did the right thing and got him properly examined, right? No, wrong. They instead sent him to solitary confinement in, um, instead. Four days in solitary confinement and he requested to see another doctor as he was having chest pains and blacking out. It took them 12 and a half hours later for a doctor to come and see him. That doctor then ordered that he be hospitalized. He had an electrocardiogram done and it was discovered that he had an irregular heart heartbeat. 
Nothing was done, however, and three days later, he once again asked to see a doctor. He was refused this and then was also refused the following day when he asked again. Finally, on February 9th, he was able to see a doctor due to the pain in his chest, arm, and back. The doctor just prescribed him some more pain medication to take for three days. So the pain spread from hurting his back when he dropped the cotton to now having chest pains, pain in his arms, and in his chest. Er, Then, two days later, Gamble made his civil rights complaint for cruel and unusual punishment. He stated that he was not treated medically and he was er, treated medically the proper way and that he was simply being prescribed too many medications that did not make him feel better. This claim eventually made its way to the Supreme Court and the question was, did Gamble's complaint sufficiently state a claim where relief could be granted? And while Gamble was not treated correctly medically, he was seen 17 times over the span of three months by several doctors. The ruling made was that Gamble did not face cruel and unusual punishment, but rather medical malpractice. While this is also terrible, it's not an infringement of the civil rights of prisoners. Medical malpractice does not become a constitutional claim just because the victim is a prisoner. Due to this case, however, it was re-established that prisons are responsible for the well-being of its prisoners. However, it was newly established that there must be what's called deliberate indifference from the guards and prison staff towards the prisoners for it to be a violation of the Eighth Amendment. So this means that correctional facilities must ignore the suffering of an inmate on purpose for it to be considered cruel and unusual punishment. So while Gamble lost his case, it did lead to clear expectations of prison staff when it came to the well-being of the inmates. As for Gamble, the courts did say that he was allowed to directly sue the doctors who treated him as he had a solid case of medical malpractice against them. Our final case builds off of this this last case in regards to the Eighth Amendment. Farmer versus Brennan is our last case study and was also argued by the United States Supreme Court. Our story starts with Dee Farmer, a transgender woman who was put at in jail at age 18 for credit card fraud. Now, when I was reading through these case studies, they refer to Farmer with he, him pronouns, but I have read that her preferred pronouns are she, her. So I will be going with that, even though the courts deemed her as a male. So despite Farmer being diagnosed as transsexual, wearing women's clothing, undergoing estrogen therapy, and having breast implants, She was placed in the male's general population in the Federal Corrections Institute in Oxford, Wisconsin. So Farmer was in prison for a while and often faced disciplinary consequences as she wasn't on her best role model behavior, we'll say. So while at the Corrections Institute in Oxford, she was sometimes placed in administrative segregation due to her behavior, but also because Sometimes the guards thought she would be safer there. Eventually, Farmer was transferred to the United States Penitentiary in Terre Haute, Indiana, due to her troublesome behavior. Penitentiaries are known to house more violent or problematic prisoners than regular correctional centers, and Farmer was placed in administrative segregation for a short time following her arrival and then was told she would be placed in general population with the rest of the male inmates. 
Within just two weeks of being in general population, Farmer was beaten and sexually assaulted by another prisoner in her cell and then was moved back to administrative segregation while they waited an HIV test result because the inmate that assaulted her was HIV positive. Farmer filed a complaint alleging a violation of the Eighth Amendment against the warden of the penitentiary and the director of the Bureau of Prisons within their official professional capacities, and then the warden of the correctional center she was in previously, a case manager there, and the director of the Bureau of Prisons North Central Region Office, both in their official and personal capacities. So she was sending out a lot of lawsuits. Her complaint was that they all transferred her to the Terre Haute Penitentiary and placed her in the general population despite knowing full and well that she would be at a higher risk of assault or sexual assault because she is a transgender who projects feminine characteristics, which means she's just at an increased risk in general. She actually used Estelle versus Gamble, the previous case we just talked about, in her argument and stated that the guards and warden had deliberate indifference towards her safety. She was seeking punitive and compensatory damages and an injunction stating that she would never stay at a penitentiary again. So the the issue in question was, were the prison officials liable under the Eighth Amendment for acting with deliberate indifference to Ms. Farmer's safety? Farmer stated that they knew that she was at a higher risk to be harmed and therefore they should be held accountable. However, the defendant stated that Farmer never expressed any complaints or concerns for her safety when she was going to be put with the general population. So what did the Supreme Court rule? On June 6, 1994, they stated that this incident did not violate the Eighth Amendment as Farmer did not express any concerns about being moved, so the warden and guards were not reckless in a criminal sense, and they didn't have any knowledge of the potential danger. While this does sound like a load of baloney to me, I can't say I'm the one in charge, therefore it really doesn't matter what I think. However, this was the first time that the Supreme Court has ever addressed the issue of sexual assault in prisons. They also stated that the prisoners have the right to be protected from sexual violence and that Farmer would be able to seek damages from the officials that put her in danger. This case made it so that the guards and other corrections employees are held liable if there is sexual assault and they did nothing to try and prevent it. So, in conclusion, this was a win and a loss for D. Farmer. Now that we have gone over these cases, it's crazy to think about all the rights we take for granted as people who are not incarcerated. Or at least I hope you're listening to this in a place that isn't a prison. That would be unfortunate. Anyways, I hope you learned a lot and enjoyed this episode of the One Hit Wonder podcast. I won't be seeing you next week. That kind of defeats the purpose of this being a one-time thing. And also, finals are over, therefore summer break. So enjoy that, whoever is listening to this, and bye.